I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. That fetching background music was called Bebop Blues, and we hope you'll agree that it has a nicely constitutional air. On today's show, we begin a three-part series on political parties and the Constitution. Later this month, the Republican Party will gather in Cleveland to hold its national convention and confirm its presumptive presidential nominee. Just days later, the Democratic Party will gather here in Philadelphia for its own convention. In the coming weeks, we will explore the constitutional history of both parties, what they stand for today, and what they've meant throughout history. But on today's show, we go back to the founding, to the text of the Constitution, and to American history to understand the role of the parties in our constitutional system at the beginning and up to today. Joining me to discuss this absolutely fascinating and extremely important topic are two of America's leading experts on American election law and politics. James Caesar is professor of politics at the University of Virginia and a member of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board. And Luis Fuentes Rohr is professor of law and Harry T. Ice faculty fellow at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. James, Luis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. James, let's begin with you. Uh, what was the founders' opinion of political parties, and did it evolve? Well, the founders were uh, antagonistic to political parties. They hoped they would never exist. Um, in fact, it's so much the case in our Constitution that you'll notice in the original Constitution, in the election of the president, the one who received the most votes would be elected president. The person who received the next amount of electoral votes would be vice president. No parties, no tickets. So it would be as if today you would have a, uh, a election in November and have elected Hillary Clinton along with Donald Trump or Donald Trump along with Hillary Clinton, uh, indicating that there was no notion of parties. Of course, they understood that there would be uh, organizations and parties forming inside the legislative branch. But the form of parties we have now that nominate, that tie together executive and the legislature, that have a national name or brand that uh, allows for the majority to express its will through the instrument of party, none of that was part of the original plan. James says the founder suspected parties. Uh, George Washington famously warned that parties would enable men to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government. Uh, Madison and Hamilton in Federalist 1 and 10 warned about the dangers of uh, parties. Uh, how did parties arise in the early republic, and, and did the founders change their views about them? Well, Jeff, yeah, they, <clears throat> the framers didn't, uh, the founders, didn't really change their views on parties. Um, <clears throat> what's interesting about our, what it's known as the first party system, is that parties basically rose organically. Basically, politics led to the rest of the party system, or, or party cleavages, I should say, so that you think about, I mean, we can't call the federalism at the federalist. We can't call them parties, as we know the term today. You know, they don't have the, the same structures and legitimacies that have, that, that have come to represent parties today. But soon thereafter, you think about what happens in American politics, as much as they deride parties, and if you read the Federalist Papers, I mean, they, the mention of parties arises often, not just faction, but parties. 
Franklin, as you pointed out, the framers, I mean, you go to Franklin, Madison, Jefferson, Hamilton, all down the line, Washington, all of them derived parties. And yet, as soon as American politics uh, gets a foothold, as soon as we begin the experiment, the first major debate on the Bank of the United States, here's Hamilton on the one side, and there's Madison on the other side, which is really telling and oh so interesting how that came about. I mean, it, it basically, it, it happened. The, the interest of the politics led them to basically take sides in the politics of the day and the issues of the day. Of course, that's not parties, as I said before. They're not parties the way we think of them today. But soon enough, it happened. I mean, as James will tell you, she will talk about this, by the election of 1800, um, we had something much closer to a party system, to, to, to what we know today as, as political, political parties, as, as we've come to know. And that's because even though they knew, and there's reasons for this, even though they knew, they the framers, that parties were, in a way, toxic, noxious, they, they went against reason, they, they went against public-mindedness. In the end, they, I don't know that they suspected but they they knew cleavages would arise, and that's exactly what happened. The, they arose from from day one, essentially. Great. Well, James, as, as Luis says, it was the debate over the Bank of the United States, which listeners and people around the world now know from the Hamilton musical, uh, that really uh, led to the uh, rise of the first two parties, the, the Federalist and the Democratic Republicans. Um, to, to tell us about why, in particular, those those parties arose during that debate, and then take us forward about uh, how the parties evolved into the uh, Republican and Democratic parties that we know today. Well, Jeff, um, I hope I could get tickets to Hamilton. I see that you've seen it. <laughs> I, I was not going to see it. It's, it's absolutely great. <laughs> I wish we could order tickets to our listener, offer them to our listeners, but instead all they can get is a copy of a book about Louis Brandeis. So it's almost as exciting, <laughs> but we can try to re- do hip-hop for Brandeis, too. <laughs> well, in the 1790s, uh, there was the issue of uh, the division over the bank and Hamilton's economic program, which d- divided people, not necessarily into parties initially, but divided them. Um, on top of that, there was uh, the, the issues of foreign policy, which I think became crucial. The favoritism of uh, the Rep- uh, Jeffersonians for France and of the Federalists more for Britain. I think the uh, overlay of the ideology of the French Revolution was central. As strange as it sounds, American politics in the 1790s took its cues on many ideas from uh, ideas about the French Revolution, for and against. And that extended into American political thought for 60 or 70 years, uh, more than people suspect. So the combination of those led to uh, the Jeffersonians calling the uh, Federalist monarchists, charged them with wanting to reestablish a kind of monarchy, whereas the Federalists looked at the uh, Jeffersonians and labeled them as radical Democrats or Jacobins, that term from the French Revolution. That's what uh, led to the controversy. And as it developed, they began to develop the instruments of party. Newspapers, which originally were really outreaches of the parties, not independent uh, press. Uh, Nominating systems. The key to the formation of parties is the development, really, of nominations. That's what makes a party a party. It excludes all others except the ones that the party sets up. 
the parties were entirely private. That is, they had no status under law. But uh, as you get to 1800, they were nominating, they had a name, and they asked for a national majority on behalf of that name. Of course, I should point out that this birth of parties, which took place, on neither side was expected to be permanent. Each side really wanted its party to win completely, erase the other party, and go back to the original idea of no parties. And in fact, that's what happened in the United States. When you get to the uh, 1820s, uh, you have the air of, uh, beginning even earlier, the air of uh, good feelings. That didn't mean that people got up and exercised in the morning. It meant that there was no parties. That was the definition of, of the air of good feelings. And it was favored by most in Washington, including the president, Monroe. He said the scourge of parties is over. And in fact, almost all of the elite was against national parties at that time. So parties had to be reestablished. That's the next chapter in uh, Louise can talk about this, but they had to be reestablished and weren't really fully reestablished until 1836 or 1840. Fascinating. So, Louise, take us up a little bit further. As James says, the Federalist Party collapses under uh, James Monroe and its factions are subsumed within the Democratic Republican Party. That's the era of good feeling. This ends in 1829. I'm just reading from my great constitutional prep from our wonderful prep team. Then the Democratic-Republican Party splits into the Jacksonian Democrats and the Whigs. And you can tell us about that split. And then the Whigs lasted until the 1850s when there was a split over slavery and they collapsed and the Republican Party got formed. And then after the Civil War, we see the emergence of the Democrats and the Republicans. That's my uh, that's the crack uh, prep team's summary. Tell us more about that split and, and basically what the major ideas that divided the parties were uh, during uh, the 19th century. If I could go back just one second to, to just say a few things about what, what James just said in terms of what happens in the late 19th in the late 18th century. I'm thinking that's exactly right. How parties basically they wanted to to install themselves while, while crushing the opposition. So we start seeing. Throughout the late 18th century, right, you have the, the 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 party in power. When you have the Adams election, and then you have the think of the Whiskey Rebellion, right? Think of the X Y Z affair. All these things start happening. Alien and Sedition Acts. These are moments when one party is seeking to basically eliminate the other party, and, and we keep seeing this throughout. Think about the Judiciary Act of 1801, for example, post the election of 1800, same story. Here's a party who's losing, that's losing grip on power, seeking to, to, to hold on to that power any way it can, and the only way it had, the only means it had, was through federal law, installing judges, and of course that led to the moment most of our listeners, most of your listeners know well, which is um, ultimately Marbury versus Madison. And I say that to say, in my mind, when I think about political parties at the beginning of our nation, in a way, I think of Chief Justice Marshall as the great, a great party leader. Right? You think about the Federalist, the Federalist Party in 1801, 1804, 1805, surely 1812, Federalist policies are still being reflected in law. Think about, in fact, the, the big question at the time, the Bank of the United States. Here's a policy, a Federalist policy dating back years, decades, 
And here's you know, the, the, the canonical McCulloch versus Maryland case in 1819. Here's uh, Chief Justice Marshall basically exhorting, uh, putting into law uh, federalist principles. Think of Gibbons, right? Think of a strong national government. Think of Hamiltonian policies and what, what Hamilton stood for. And here's Chief Justice Marshall basically continuing in that tradition. And I don't mean to suggest, of course, that it's a, a linear um, exhortation. I don't mean to suggest that, that Marshall's copying from Hamilton nor is there a direct line from one to the other. I'm suggesting, rather, that the, the, the values, the ideas are still being seen. You can see them in national politics through the Chief Justice. And that's supremely interesting, because when I think about the parties today, and we're going to get to that by the end of our podcast, of our time here, this is something I want to bring back to the conversation, the way that, that Article 3, the way that the appointment process, which has been in the news lately, the way that that matters deeply. And here we see the first example. Here's Chief Justice Marshall to his death in the 1830s, essentially carrying out policies that began with a party that was then long gone. And then, as, as you suggested, then by 1824, you think of the, the, the next rise, right, the Democratic Party and the, the Whig Party, right? You have the, the cleavage then was slavery. And what's beautiful about what happened, you think about the role of parties. Why have them? Here's a framer saying, we don't want these, these, these um, institutions and yet, they arise immediately, and they serve a great role, which was to, to discipline members, to cabin issues. Here's the Whig Party, right? You think about internal um, internal affairs. Think about the, 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 the country, the railroad, improving our country. And then you think of the Jeffersonians and the, the Democratic Party, right? And which came to stand for, for slavery. Right? You had cleavages that were reflected in party politics. And think about what happened when we get to the story by Dred Scott in the 1850s. Think of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Once parties cease to, to do their roles, their constitutional roles, we get essentially civil war, which is a, it's a telling example as to what happens. Once we go from parties to sectionalism, the country couldn't sustain it. The debates couldn't sustain it, and only war could cure that. Very interesting. The suggestion that, uh, as you said, parties could avoid war and that uh, sectionalism precipitated it is an important defense of parties. James, in a very interesting interview with Bill Crystal, you made a defense of parties on a different ground. You talk about one of your heroes being Martin Van Buren, who was most responsible for reestablishing parties. And his argument, as you said, was that it transformed the Constitution a little bit but was necessary in part to save the Constitution because what he feared was the advent of demagogic leaders. Uh, tell us about why Van Buren believed that without parties, six or seven or more people uh, could run in a demagogic way and why he believed uh, that parties were a defense against demagogues. Yes, I mean, parties that grow out of cleavages, but they are also institutions and they have to be regarded by the American people as acceptable. And the amazing change that took place between, say, 1824 and 1840 was uh, the change from people being largely against parties to the time you get to 1840, and everyone 
accepted that parties were part of America's political system. It's probably the most important, significant institutional change that we had in the United States, the advent of parties, and it never required a constitutional amendment. It was brought about uh, outside of the Constitution by doctrine, and the leading force was Martin Van Buren. It emerged out of the election of 1824 for him. That was the election where you had uh, uh, four or five candidates running. No candidate received a majority. It eventually, as you know, went into the House. But when Van Buren analyzed that election, he said, look, if we have no parties, We'll have a variety of candidates running. Each may run to a section or a part of the country. And in bidding against each other, each would appeal to a narrow base initially to try and get at least in the top three to get in the Electoral College. And instead of appealing broadly, would appeal either to sections using demagogic arguments and divide the country. So what he feared in 1824 was that the presidential selection process would be the, uh, the, 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 the instrument, the campaign, would be the instrument that would destroy the country, dividing it into pieces. The only thing that could save the country, therefore, was the political party. It wasn't what the founders wanted, but what Van Buren argued is, given the change in the electoral system, popular elections, party was the savior. It was the only thing that could keep the country together, knit the country together. And what he had in mind were two parties that had to be national in scope, that is, North and South, that would be able to bring in together coalitions of majorities, keep elections interesting but still safe, avoid the things that would destroy it, and especially avoid uh, demagogy. For Van Buren, as for the founders, the real danger in American politics was a presidential selection process that would allow ambition to direct the candidates in the way they wanted to go, that is, their own desire to have that office, the presidency, at uh, the risk of destroying or dividing the country. Some institutions had to be devised to suppress that. In the Founders' plan, that was supposed to be the Electoral College. Sorry, it didn't work. That was the fourth national institution. There's four national institutions, President, Congress, Court, and the presidential selection system. It didn't work for them. Van Buren reinstituted the parties with that view in mind to have a, 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 a system. So it had conventions, politicians doing the nominations, um, coalitions of leaders, uh, and, it, and it worked for a while until it was overcome by a cleavage greater than Van Buren ever expected, which was the cleavage over slavery. Very interesting indeed. Louise, were parties resurrected after the Civil War, and did they continue to serve the purpose that James identifies our listeners uh, to our uh, companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, heard Sean Wilentz recently talk about his book, uh, which is also a dramatic defense of political parties and says that they really have been the engine for social change and channeling ambition for much of American history. So my question is, from the Civil War uh, onward for the next hundred years, did parties play uh, a constructive uh, role or not? Describe describe how they they, they Well, they, they did. played a role, yes. Um, as I said before, and as James pointed out, it by Kansas, Nebraska. This is 1854. The the Republican, the, the Whig Party. I'm sorry, the Whig Party basically ceases to exist. It, it just implodes, and the Democratic Party loses its its its, its strength, its its historic strength that had a, the moment in time. And so the Republican Party begins in around 1856. So it's a nascent party, of course, so it doesn't have the, the means by which to discipline membership. It doesn't have the capabilities that it requires to do it, its important job. But think about what James said. Then you see this in the election, uh, in terms of Van Buren, that is. 
you see this in the election of 1860. It becomes a sectional election. You have four candidates pulling in different ways. The country's not, it's not, uh, the, the electorate, I should say, is not disciplined in the ways required of the moment. And that's crucial. So in the end, once Lincoln wins the election, the, the, essentially the non, I wouldn't even say the Democratic Party because it would, that's not what happened. The, the South says, no, that is important to the story. And it tells, in fact, that it shows precisely what happened. The South basically secedes. South Carolina just says, no more. And this is, of course, what leads to, to the war. What's interesting to this story, thinking about, and, and we can debate whether this is constructive or not, that, that's a different conversation, but surely what happens, and it's so interesting that we could spend days on this, think about how the Democratic Party, I mean, they're out of the country. Out of, I take that back, Lincoln, not out of Lincoln's country, but they're basically outside of government during the Civil War. Once the war ends, this is 1865-66, the South comes back to Congress. And of course, Congress, or in this case the Republicans, keep them out. And we have this whole debate about how you let the states back, or the Confederate states back into the country. By the 1870s, then the Democratic Party is again winning elections. And that is just, it's remarkable how that happens. How the, the cleavage of slavery, and now, of course, slavery is now over, but the cleavage of, of race leads that debate. And think about all the civil rights acts passed by Congress. Think, of course, the, the amendments passed by Congress. Think of the Enforcement Act of the 1870s. Think of the 75 Civil Rights Act. Right, all, of these, all of these laws, all these efforts by the Republican Party lead essentially in some ways right, to, 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 to a comeback by the Democratic Party, 74, 76, or they win the House, and they win the popular vote in 76, and in 78, 80, they win back the Senate. I mean, it's, it's remarkable how this happens, really that quickly, which speaks to how the idea of a two-party system, it's interesting, yet so, so, so important. Right? A, a, you need, or the, the need for a, a, a counterpoint which is part of what makes a two-party system so important. The need to, to an opposition that is legitimate, that can actually raise points and, and carry debates. This is exactly what happened in the 1870s. Um, we can debate whether that's constructive or not, or whether it was constructive, right? Because what the Democratic Party is doing is basically dismantling Reconstruction. And this leads, of course, to the election of 1876, and, of course, the, the famous, infamous, Compromise of 1877, but that's, of course, part of our conversation. That's part of the story. It is indeed. And what I want to ask uh, James now is that if, uh, according to Van Buren, parties would be protections against demagogues, uh, what were some of the changes in politics that led to the weakening of parties in the 20th century? And did that rise to the lead to the rise of uh, demagogues? Well, um we come to the 20th century, in the late 19th century, there was a reaction against parties. They were very strong, and opposition to parties said, well, uh, the, the problem with parties is that they're both, uh, both of them are corrupt. They exist really not to express differences, as they should, so, some said, but they really to, uh, it exist 
so that people can remain in office at all levels. And uh, they do so by uh, making deals with business elites and especially by patronage, by giving jobs to their friends. There was no civil service initially, giving jobs to the, their friends and supporters of the party. That's how the party was able to get its workers. It would get uh, pay people a salary to work for government, but 10% of their salary or certain number of their hours were to be given to the party. So parties had a desire and a necessity to, to, to win election to hold those jobs. So critics came and said that the problem with the American party system is it's all based upon this, uh, this form of corruption, suppressing interesting leaders, great people, and ideas. Uh, or as someone put uh, James Price put it, why are great men never elected president, which was a, a question Woodrow Wilson asked as, well, asked as well. So in the progressive era, there was an effort, therefore, to uh, tr- transform the electoral system. Yes, to have parties, but parties of an entirely different sort, not parties that really nominated presidential candidates. That should be turned over to primaries and to the public, but parties that would form around the individual who, in going to the country and arguing for his uh, uh, nomination, would uh, articulate his own vision, a particular vision of what the country would be, and the party would form around that individual. So the party became, in a way, candidate-centered. It was not the party's nominee, but the nominee's party. That was the the change that I think that uh, Wilson had in mind. Of course, he had expectations for high-minded leaders who would address American people at their highest level uh, during the nomination contest, parties that would form after, around, and platforms around the successful leaders. The criticism, though, would have uh, come from those who defended the old system. They said, but look, the real consequence of this is, is going to be to throw these elections and nominations open to persons who really aren't selected anymore by a party. They're individuals competing for an electorate on their own. There's no restrictions on what they can say or what they can do. If they win the the nomination, it's theirs. Hence the danger of demagogy. This issue was raised, and uh, and, uh, uh, Wilson more or less dismissed it, saying it was exaggerated. We don't have to worry about this in the modern age. Demagogues were from an older time. But I, I believe, as we've seen, parties lose control of the nomination, there is no organization which controls it. Uh, this issue of demagogy looms very large. How do you become president of the United uh, nominee of your party today? Well, look around. Uh, you get an idea. It's an individual setting up his own organization, setting up his own program, going after enough of the, le- of the electorate of his party plus independence to capture the nomination, or as in the case of the Republican Party, to rent it by a person who was never really a, a, a Republican, or almost in the Democratic Party. Uh, for someone to take it who had never been a Democrat. Uh, the notion of party at the, the central level has is, is really been d- diminished. The parties are, are labels for rent. Interesting. Uh, Luis, tell us about some of the other changes in the 20th century that diminished the power of parties. Uh, you can learn in our wonderful new exhibit at the Constitution Center called Headed for the White House that it wasn't until the 1970s that the uh, Democrats began to elect uh, most of their uh, state candidates through direct primaries. Um, uh, we also had a great conversation with uh, uh, Jeffrey Cowan about his his book on Theodore Roosevelt and the rise of uh, direct elections. But tell us about 20th century reforms that diminish the power of the parties. Well, think about, and as we talk about parties, you know, the, the one idea, that the concept that keeps coming back to mind is this is a famous categorization by V.O. Key about what the meaning of party and what party 
mean? What is a party, right? He had a three-partite definition. He said, you know, there's the party, what he called the party in the government. And these are the elected officials, the people at the top who are doing the, the party work in public policy. And he talked about the professional political workers. He said, like the, think of the party committees at the state and national levels doing the, I suppose, the nitty-gritty against the parties. Um, rolling on a day-to-day basis, and then think of party in the electorate. And think about what it requires, when you think about it in that way, what it requires for a party to be a strong party. Like you, you would like a connection between the three. And think about, you know, meaning, meaning by that, you want the, the party in the electorate, that we the people, us as a grass, at the grassroots level, basically in synergy with the other two steps the other two conceptions of party, the other two, the other two components of party. So when, when you have a, a, a disjointed um, connection, then you run into trouble, right? The party then, to, to, to talk about a strong party, what we're usually talking about, we're not really talking about the party in the electorate, right? We're talking about the party in the government or the po- professional political workers. So you think about what what James was saying, you think about patronage, right? You need, parties need ways to, to reward members. Parties need ways to discipline its members, which is what makes a party actually strong. If parties don't follow the leaders or the, the electorate, that is, well, then that's not going to lead to a strong party, nor will it lead to, to anything but, but a weak party. So think about what happens in the late 19th century. Think about the populist era. Think about the the... And I think about this in terms of race. Think about how, when we think about weak parties and the need for a strong two-party system, think about what happens, for example, in Texas, where you have the rise of a very strong Democratic Party. And essentially, this is what led, as we all know, to the white primary cases, by the idea that the, the, there was a dis, dis juncture between, or a, a, a break between party and electorate and the party in the government and, of course, the party networks, so that you had a whole section of the electorate kept out of politics. Right? All you had to do was control the primary system, and this led to very interesting questions about the state action doctrine. It led to very interesting questions about what is a party. Uh, what is a party under constitutional law or, or for constitutional purposes? Is it, I, we alluded to it before. Is a party a state actor? As a party, uh, or are parties private actors? And the court has wrestled with that question for quite some time, and the, the question doesn't have easy answers. In fact, some people, most notably Charles Black, has called that a conceptual disaster area. I mean, it's just difficult to disentangle all the strands. But the, the point of, of that example of the white primaries is that in the end, you, had, you need a strong two-party system. The Republican Party in the South, um, for historical reasons, once that party ceases to, to, to compete. Essentially, blacks in the South had nowhere to go. And so you have this complete disengagement. I mean, this is Jim Crow. Right? This is the white primaries. This is the Mississippi plan in 1890. Basically, one party which leads essentially to basically no politics. Or should be no politics for the people who are not part of the, of the party in power, which in this case was in the South was the Democratic Party. 
Uh, interesting. James, uh, Louise alludes to the Supreme Court's uh, jurisprudence regarding political parties and some of its decisions have, have weakened uh, party control. Could the Supreme Court strengthen parties again? And are there any other forces in American politics uh, in this very democratic age that might uh, bring back political parties? Well, we have to be nuanced in this sense. Uh, I mentioned how parties were, were in some sense weak in the nominating of the president. Yet, we've been going through an era where parties are, have been extremely cohesive by historical standards and strong within the legislature. And in the workings together of, say, the president and Congress, uh, you know, the Democrats will support their president, and uh, the Republicans have stuck together. So it's a, a much more nuanced picture about the state of parties. On the question of the legal uh, expanding of parties, uh, I don't think the Supreme Court uh, could ever be the institution that could save parties. If parties are going to save, uh, be saved, they'll have to save themselves. And the direction that I would see personally for saving themselves is returning to an almost completely private status, getting the state out of parties, which would mean uh, to taking it to its, uh, its, its limit, that the parties would print the ballots, not the state, that the parties, each party, anyone who wanted to get on a ballot, uh, control or access to a ballot, line on the ballot, would have to present a petition that would go for independence, that would go for parties. The parties would separate themselves from this connection to the state, uh, uh, mostly the, 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 state, the, uh, the various states, that would be a way where parties can strengthen themselves. They should be private institutions. They're an intermediary between the government and the people. That has to form. And we're seeing this already come up in the Republican convention uh, this year in a, in a decision that was made yesterday in the state of Virginia, of all places. Can a state law uh, require a delegate to vote in a certain way? Well, the state of Virginia says you have to vote a certain way at the, at the, at the convention, but the, the delegate said, well, no, uh, I'm, a, I'm a delegate. I can vote how, however I want. This is a private institution, and the judge seemed to, to, to move in favor of the delegate, moving the idea that parties should be private institutions. That could strengthen them. So that would be my, my idea. Parties uh, would, uh, would um, pub publish their own tickets or, or ballots, People would take their ballots to the uh, to the public place and drop them off. Everything would be done through the parties, and the state would get out of the business of, of trying to somehow co-opt parties at some point and somehow control them. Somehow, sometimes weakening them, sometimes trying to strengthen them. It will never be fixed by law. Uh, thank you so much for that, uh, Louise uh, James has just suggested the privatization of parties. You and your writings have criticized the court for entering too far into what. Justice Frankfurter famously called the political thicket, and you've said, unfortunately, the court has made clear it cannot be trusted in its self-appointed role as regulator of our politics. For my part, I would rather see the court pay heed to the lessons of Baker and Carr, uh, the lessons of democracy and, uh, and American democracy as a whole would be better served with a court far more humble and deferential to policy decisions made elsewhere. Tell us more what you mean about that. How has the court been too interventionist, and how could it be more deferential when it comes to party politics? Well, think about, and that, I wrote that, um, I don't know how soon after, uh, Bush versus Gore, but think about <clears throat> what happens in 1960. Think about Baker versus Carr. Think about the moment before Baker versus Carr. The court is, as you suggested, it's... Um, not, it's not inter it's afraid to enter the political terrain, afraid that their 
their esteem, and this comes, as you suggested, from Justice Frankfurter, that esteem in the eyes of the public will suffer if they enter contests that are essentially political contests. And so comes Baker versus Carr, and the country had reached a point where the court felt strong enough and supported enough to to finally regulate politics. And so what's interesting to me about that, in the beginning, all the litigants, Archibald Cox, Solicitor General for uh, at the time, everybody in front of the court, of course, but the states who just wanted the court out of politics altogether, the, the litigants, the plaintiffs, all they wanted was rationality review. All they want is to say, make whatever the state is doing, please be sure, please ensure that it is reasonable. It, it was, a, to, to my mind, a really, really low-level review standard. Arbitrary and capricious, as the court, as the litigants said many times, and the court, in fact, used the language in Baker. What happens in the very next major case, essentially, this is Reynolds versus Sims, the court moved forward aggressively. And today, and I know you've had conversations about this on your podcast, and I very much enjoy them. Today, we take one person, one vote as a given. I mean, you think about it, the term, the slogan is so attractive. One person, one vote, but of course, what else, what else would it be? And yet, you think about the choices for the court in Reynolds, this is 1964. The court didn't have to, to essentially impose one person, one vote. And this is separate from me saying whether I agree or disagree with the actual standard. The argument I made was, and I still make it, the court could have stopped with Baker, yet chose to go forward. You look at the across the states, many federal courts were in fact doing the court's bidding. And the, the courts opened in 61, and the lower federal courts took cases. And legislatures were in fact districting themselves in ways they hadn't done in generations. Once Reynolds happens, once you impose one person, one vote, as essentially as a, as a question of political theory, there's no logical stopping point, is the argument. Then, essentially, once you do Reynolds versus Sims, don't be surprised when you do Bush versus Gore. You can't have one without the other. They're bookends. And so we criticize Bush versus Gore. We have to criticize Reynolds versus Sims. I don't know that you, you can't have them both is the argument. And then from there on, think about other things the court is doing today. Some for good, some for bad, but that's a separate argument. That's a separate question to me. The argument is, what role should the court be playing in our politics? Should it be aggressive? Should it be policing at the boundaries, which is Baker? Or should it be enmeshed in the middle, making decisions that's left for others? And to me, that's, that's Reynolds versus Sims. Very good. One more uh, round of questions and then uh, closing arguments. James, we've had a relatively stable reign of the Democrats and the Republicans uh, since the post-Civil War era. Um, what would it take to have either a party realignment, a, a collapse of one of the parties, a redefinition of it? Um, and what does history teach us about whether we should continue this Democratic-Republican uh, alliance to continue uh, into the future? What, 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 what will the future bring? Well, parties are the most dynamic part of our institutional arrangement because they're not constitutional entities. So the form that they're going to take is always subject to change according to the, the politics of the day. One function of parties, as Van Buren had, is to suppress 
conflict. Another function of parties is to express it. That's the paradox. And parties do express it. It turns out, therefore, that if uh, the electorate moves away from a political party, a party can die. It happened once in the 1850s. It could happen again, depending on the, the politics of the day. One of the parties could simply co- collapse. I would uh, say that what we should be moving towards, therefore, is the idea of closed parties, that is, parties that are private, but definitely an open party system where uh, a new party can come in and uh, uh, take the function of one of the others, take the place of one of others, if that happens. No one can prescribe in perpetuity the existence of the Democratic or Republican parties. It's not part of our Constitution. It's not part of our law. They're not duopolies. It's a competitive system. So what will happen will happen. It is possible to imagine something taking the place of one of our parties. I don't see the basis for it right now. The Republican Party is under a kind of stress. It's possible, but uh, four or eight years hence, it could be the Democratic Party that's under stress and about to break up. That's a function of the politics, not of uh, of any plans that uh, we can uh, legislate. Uh, Louise, what would it take to have the Republican or Democratic Party break up? We're, we're hearing today about uh, fissures within the parties, but what, what what does it take to cause a crack up? It would take more than I expect I will see in my lifetime. Political parties have so many built-in advantages in our system, in our, in our structure, that I can't even begin to fathom what it would take. I mean, and I know you're right. People say today that and you hear too often, perhaps, that this election will be will bring about the end of the Republican Party. I'm not sure. I can't, as I said, I can't even begin to fathom what that would look like. And you, uh, by the way, uh, there's no question that the party is under great, great stress. I mean, you think about the primary system, and James alluded to this, I and mean, you think about the way the party, the, 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 the leader of the party, as we understand the term today, has right, chosen through this primary process. You could argue that the, the party and the electorate has, and, and we can, of course, debate this point. I mean, I think about all the issues we raised in this short conversation about the rights of parties and, and Van Buren and go back to the election of uh, 1796, you know, how many candidates run for office. Think of the Republican primary, right? The more candidates you have, the more likely it is or the, or the, the bigger the probability that somebody could hijack, if, if that's the right term, somebody who's not representative or somebody who's not supported by the, by the party in the electorate, right, that that person could arise victorious from the, from the primary system. Some argue that's what happened here. And yet, even then, I don't think that the Republican Party, as we know it, will be in any danger of ceasing to exist. Think back to what I said about the ways we should understand the party system and think how quickly and this is, of course, in the primary, how we, that you heard talk of, of the party imploding, oftentimes from political elites, by the way, not within the party. Think about how so quickly, after the primary season was essentially over, how many party leaders came and joined forces. Think about, on both sides, in fact, just today, just a few hours ago, I believe, um, Bernie Sanders came out in support of Hillary Clinton, but well, that shouldn't surprise anybody. I mean, think about all the, the cleavage we thought, this populist cleavage that we were seeing three months ago. The party will discipline its members. That's what parties do. What would it take for members to become undisciplined? As I said, that, that is a question. And the answer is one I don't think I can give you because it's something cataclysmic. I think about 
1854. Think of the Israeli moments that you referred to earlier. Uh, it takes more. It takes depressions. It takes it takes slavery. It takes cleavages that have lasted for generations that we we can't solve. And in the end, we just simply move a different way. What is the issue today? Maybe maybe it's the economy. Maybe after Brexit, maybe that's the one. But uh, boy, it would I tell you, it would surprise me deeply. I, I don't see it. Very good. Well, this has been a superb conversation. We will delve in more deeply to the history first of the Republican Party next week and then the following week, the history of the Democratic Party. But it's time now for closing arguments. Uh, so, James, I'm going to ask you, uh, why are political parties important in the American constitutional system and why should they endure? Well, parties are important because they maybe allow for something that wasn't uh, uh, provided for sufficiently in the Constitution, some would say. That is for the expression of a kind of national majority. Think of the original system that we had. The president elected as an individual, the members of Congress in each circumscription and state elected as individuals. That's a system that allows for deliberation, allows for separation of powers, but does it give a voice, uh, some might say, to some national majority, some idea that we want to move in a certain direction in a coordinated way? Parties were introduced in part to, to provide that. That was Jefferson's idea. We, we want to move in a certain direction. We want to save the country from the Federalists. It allowed the idea of something like a, a weak national majority as an overlay upon a constitutional system that didn't uh, uh, favor this idea of named majorities. That's the, the, uh, the advantage that parties have. They're probably natural in some sense to democracy. You can understand the weaknesses and dangers of them. Those were pointed out. But I think some expression of parties is a, a natural outcome of a, of a democratic system. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, Louise, last word to you. Why are parties important in our constitutional system, and, and why should they endure? Well, you know, one thing that when I thought about the question, when I think about parties in our Constitution, the biggest issue for me, the, the one area that I think about a lot is the advice and consent power. And this is, as I said earlier, this has been in the news for obvious reasons. The, the, the recent nomination by President Obama of Mary Garland. But think about how constitutional change happens. And this is something we talk about a lot in your show and others. And, and we think about it um, quite a lot. Well, to my mind, parties, this is a, a way by which we can influence constitutional change. And so you think about the way the, 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 the document of the, its interpretation changes. Well, it changes through um, changes in the court's composition, of course. And that's one way of saying if you win elections, the Constitution then changes accordingly. And this is not a novel point. This has been made by Robert Dahl and many others long before my time. But then think about the recent cases. Think about, and this is, a, to me, just too interesting for words. Think of the gun control, the Second Amendment, Heller case, and others. Think of abortion rights. Think of Fisher and Justice Kennedy's apparent change of heart, if you want to call it that. Think of executive power. Think of marriage equality. And I could go on forever. How did those cases happen? Well, the common denominator to me for these issues is that really strong and influential social movements supported these issues, and then you know, they did the grassroots work. The party and the lecturer did the work to, uh, to, to create conditions by which 
the, the Constitution could then reflect their views. And then, of course, you needed a, a pretty basic thing, something that's it's, it's obvious. Then you needed these social movements to gain a foothold within the major political parties. So they'll, they'll then nominate people that will lead to the change in our constitutional meaning. To me, that it's we don't talk about it enough. Surely we don't talk about it in law schools enough, I don't think. But that's to me, that's what makes parties so important. I mean, when we think about the Garland nomination, to me, and, and the Republican Party refusing to hold hearings, to me, that's not... It, it shouldn't surprise anybody. In fact, to my mind, it, the, the point should be instead what took so long. Thank you so much, uh, James Caesar and Luis Fuentes Rohr for an illuminating uh, and uh, historically rich discussion of the role of political parties in our constitutional system. As I mentioned, we'll be doing deep dives into the history of the Republican and Democratic parties in subsequent weeks. But for now, I want to thank you so much, Luis and James, for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Constitution CTR, and on our Twitter feed, twitter.com forward slash Constitution CTR. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia, and we will be having some great ones coming up this summer. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out our sibling podcasts at itunes.com forward slash panoply. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, which you'll notice I did not recite at the beginning of today's podcast because of the beautiful music which so enchanted you uh, today, uh, I, want, I do need to remind you that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. And please consider the thrilling promotion that we're continuing to offer uh, for a bit longer if you join the Constitution Center at uh, the level of $125 or more. You will receive, uh, with my greatest uh, pleasure, a signed copy of the new book, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.